Hey, good morning, Redemption Tempe. Hey, John, there we go. Yeah, my name is John. If you don't know, I'm one of your pastors here, and it is great to see you all. Uh, ASU students, welcome back as school's kicking off. We've missed you this summer. Yeah. And we got Hurricane Hillary, so maybe we get some rain in this barren desert, so we'll see. Um, hey, we are continuing our series in First John, but if you weren't here last week, I just want to mention something. Uh, last week, we took a pause for a week to do a vision sermon that Jim preached, and I would really encourage you all, if you missed it, to go back and listen to it as Jim cast the vision for our church and kind of where we believe God is uh, taking us and, and calling us uh, to be as a church. So I want to say that. Um, but today we're back in First John. So we live in a society that is obsessed with love. We are inundated by images of love everywhere we look. From the movies and like the nine different subgenres of romance movies to reality TV shows to advertising and marketing everywhere we look that is selling us love. But it's not just in the images we see, we hear love songs as well. The love is in the songs we hear going all the way back to the Beatles where it's all you need is love to Taylor Swift, Blank Space, to Coldplay, Viva La Vida, to Miley Cyrus, Flowers. Love lyrics are stuck in our heads. But then as we look around at corporations and companies in our society, we hear slogans like love. It's what makes a Subaru. And if you drive a Subaru, you must be filled with love. Yeah, a couple Subaru drivers here. But then after Christmas and New Year's, right when January starts, all of a sudden every store you walk into is selling you love because we have this holiday Valentine's Day, which is this celebration of love where in every store you go to, things are being sold for it. But the desire for love is not just in society, it's in us. And personally, I've never met anyone who ever said that they don't want to love or be loving. And if they exist and you know them, you should be scared of them because they're probably gonna be on the next true crime uh, podcast or documentary. Because every one of us wants to love and we feel a desire and a capability to love. But if we are honest, there is a disconnect when we try to live it out. And we find ourselves being selfish, being impatient, being cruel. And when it comes down to it, to actually loving people, we struggle to do it. But why? Why do we struggle? Why can't we do it? Well, it's because we have the wrong definition of love and it's because we are afraid. And as we open up to John, 1 John this morning, to the letter that he wrote to the early Christian community, how might John's letter help us be able to fully and truly love today? And so get out your Bibles or turn on your phone, in your app to, uh, or scroll in your app, I don't even know what you say, turn in your app, 
You don't turn pages in the app. Uh, get out your Bible and go to 1 John chapter 4. And as you turn there, scroll there, uh, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning and your mercies that are new today. Lord, that we could gather as your people. We're here because we want to worship you, Jesus, but we want to hear from you because we know that your word doesn't return void. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak and move in our midst this morning through this letter that John wrote so many years ago. It's in your name. Amen. So we're looking at uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 15 through 18 this morning. Let's jump into verse 15. John writes, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So the first thing we see in these verses is what John is saying is don't look for the definition of love in society. Look at Jesus because Jesus defines love. So in these verses, there's a whole lot of abiding going on. It's abiding in love, abiding in God. God abides in you if you abide in God. And if you abide in love, then you're abiding in God. And what John is doing here is he's using abiding in love and abiding in God interchangeably. Because what follows it is what most theologians say is the most profound statement about God in the entire Bible. God is love. John tells us God is love. And in this profound statement, he's giving us the definition of love and the origin of love, where love comes from. See, the origin of love is God. Love comes from God because his nature and essence is love. He is love and he has always loved because God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinitarian God has existed in perfect communion of love for all eternity. And so love originates with God and with the Trinity. But then there's this definition that John gives of love as well. So throughout the entire letter of 1 John, what John says is the definition of love is he says the definition of love is found in the revelation of love. And what John says is love is revealed in a particular person, Jesus. That John's definition of love is Jesus, this particular person in whom God has revealed his love to the world that the nature of God is manifested in Jesus, the one who reached out in love to redeem and restore all who he touches. John wants us to know that love is not some abstract concept. Love isn't merely just a feeling. Love isn't just revealed as ink on the pages of our Bible, but love is revealed in the person of Jesus. What John says is, if you want to know what love is, look at Jesus because he defines love. And this is why in verse 16, he says, if anyone abides in love, they abide in him. If you remember, at the beginning of the summer, we kicked off this first John sermon series, and Jake preached uh, the first 
sermon that was an overview of the entire book of 1 John. And from that sermon, Jake began to talk about John, the man who wrote this letter that we have in the New Testament. And one of the things that Jake said was that John is now writing this as an old man, and he's an old pastor. But in his life, John had three significant traumas in his life that shaped his life and that shaped his pastoral heart. And one of those traumas is the trauma of the crucifixion. That John, who writes this, stood at the foot of the cross as he held Jesus' mother next to him and watched the one whom he loved and whom he had followed for years be brutally tortured and killed. The trauma of the cross. But as John watched the crucifixion, he witnessed love. He saw what it looked like, and he saw it from a front row vantage point. And as John wrote these words to the early church, God is love, the traumatic images of Jesus' body hanging on the cross would have flooded his mind. And not just that, but all of his memories of Jesus and his life would have played out probably like a slideshow in his memory as he was writing this. And maybe John might have remembered when Jesus extended hospitality around the dinner table and ate with people, even though his reputation was tarnished. Or maybe he remembered that time when Jesus knelt down in humility to wash the filthy feet of his followers. Maybe he remembered that time when Jesus was willing to be interrupted by Bartimaeus who was blind as he screamed out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody by Bartimaeus told him to shut up and ignored him. Maybe he remembered how Jesus was willing to be seen as unclean so the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years could be made clean. Maybe John remembered that time when Jesus didn't react in rage when Judas showed up with a mob of soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane and betrayed him with a kiss. Maybe he remembered when Jesus absorbed the hostility of the soldiers as they beat him and mocked him and spit on him. We might have remembered the time that Jesus forgave as he hung on the cross and he cried out to the Father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But John definitely remembered the blood that poured out of Jesus and ran down the wooden cross onto the ground as he watched the greatest act of love that this world has ever seen. And as John wrote these words, God is love, Jesus is his definition of love. But here's the thing. While John watched Jesus, we watch romantic comedies. And I love romantic comedies. And I'm not saying anything against romantic comedies. Romantic comedies are great. Marika and I watch them all the time. I've already outed myself in previous sermons about loving chick flicks and I've got a, a soft spot in my heart. It's a guilty pleasure, right? Romantic comedies. 
But here's the thing. We watch romantic comedies all the time. And in almost every romantic movie, whether it's a comedy or drama or anything, what you're seeing is romance, not love. That's right. And in almost every romance movie, there's some common things that play out. There's always sexual attraction. There's flirtation. There's usually a little bit of competition, right? Between two guys for the girl or two girls for the guy, whatever it is, there's some competition. Then you've got a couple good nights out on the town. And then you've got, <laughs> then you've got uh, romance. That's what you see. And here's why I say this. The real love doesn't happen in the movie. It doesn't happen until after the movie ends when they have to live life together in a relationship and sacrificially serve one another. But here's the thing, we don't see that. It's not in the movie. And yet romance movies have shaped how we define love. And this is why what John wants us to hear is church, don't look for the definition of love in society or in a rom-com or in a song. Look to Jesus as the definition of love and let him shape how you love and how you live. But you are swimming in the water of a society that is not abiding in Jesus and a society that is not allowing Jesus to define love, but is instead redefining love. And instead of God is love, it has become love is God in our society. Love has become a God, but here's the thing. The definition of love is very subjective. Love is defined on your own terms, whatever you want it to be. And all love is valid regardless of who you are, how you live, or how you define it. Love means the tolerance of anything and everything as long as it doesn't harm someone. And because love is a God, you will do anything to worship this false God and it has become selfish. Love in our society has become selfish and this has led to tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Countless marriages have been ended because of it. And some of you, as I say it, you know the pain from your own marriage, or you know the pain from watching your parents when your dad left your mom. Families have been destroyed because of it. Rampant addiction in our society, destructive behaviors, and the current epidemic of loneliness in our society. Our society has been officially diagnosed as being in an epidemic of loneliness. And there is an epidemic of loneliness because people love themselves and demand love on their own terms. And it creates a society that wants to be close to each other, but actually builds barriers for closeness. Friendships are doomed to fail. And people are lonelier now than they ever have been. There's sky high depression rates 
and loneliness has been declared a national public health crisis today. And the reason why is because this is how love operates in our society. People say, I will love you if, fill in the blank, insert the condition. But it's not just in society, this happens in the church, it's bled into the church, and now people within the church are saying, I will love you like Jesus as long as you fill in the blank. Condition. Love that has conditions when it's defined by society. And when love is defined by society instead of by Jesus, relationships are transactions that only further loneliness because relationships are messy, but the conditions demanded is that they are clean, convenient, and comfortable. But this is not love. And this is not how God, who is love, treats you. It's not how he operates. Can you imagine if he did? Can you imagine if this is how God operated and treated us? I will love you if, fill in the blank with a condition. You would all be hosed, every one of us. We would be hopeless and we would be helpless. That's not good news, that's not the gospel. But the good news is that his love isn't conditional, it is unconditional. He loves you as you are, and he commits to you with all of your baggage, with all of your brokenness, even though it costs him everything to do it, because that is love. It is selfless, and it is sacrificial. Here's why this is so important. If you redefine love, you'll redefine God. Since God is love, the way you define love will change the way you define God. I'll say it another way. Your conception of love changes your conception of God, which means if you have a faulty conception of love, you will have a faulty conception of God. Because if your conception of love is letting you do whatever you want and having your way, then God is the one who should let you do whatever you want. If your conception of love is happiness, then God is the one who should just do things to make you happy all the time. But if this is how you define love, then it's easy to think that God doesn't love you when your life and relationship with him doesn't go this way. It's easy to think that he's failed you when you don't get your way and when life is hard instead of happy. And I wonder for you this morning, where do you feel like God has failed you? Where do you feel like God has failed you? Because maybe if you feel like he's failed you, or if you feel like he doesn't love you, it could be that it reveals what you really think love is. But if that's you this morning, and if you feel like he has failed you, then there is assurance that he loves you when you 
watch Jesus like John and you look at the cross. If you feel like he doesn't love you, there is assurance when you watch Jesus like John and you look at the cross because it wasn't nails that held him on the cross. It was love, his love for you. And nothing can separate you from his love. If God is love and Jesus defines love, then what does love do? John continues, verse 17. It says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The next thing John says in these verses is that when you encounter the love of God, you are freed from fear and you're no longer a slave to it. In verse 17, John comes out by starting to talk about the day of judgment and specifically he's talking about having confidence on the day of judgment. This day of judgment would have been a a very common expectation. The word eschatology, which is just a fancy theological word for saying the things of the end, right? What is yet to come. And there was a a common well-known understanding throughout the Old Testament and through many of the prophets and in places like Zephaniah chapter one that really built this expectation for the day of judgment. It was a common doctrine within the early Christian community and John knows that the day of judgment is a common doctrine because he's an old pastor. He knows, and so he's writing for assurance for the people of God, and he's emphasizing assurance, and he does so in all of his theology, not just in 1 John, but all through the Gospel of John. It's why the most famous Bible verse in the world, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he's in his only son, whosoever believe in him, what? Here's the assurance, will not perish, but have eternal life. John is always emphasizing assurance and he wants God's people to have confidence for this day of judgment. And he wants them to realize that the God who is love loves them and they can have confidence and they don't need to fear because God loves them because fear and love can't coexist. And so he says in verse 18, that's why he says perfect love casts out fear the casting out of fear. John says that love banishes fear, that there is no room for fear in love, that fear and love are like oil and water. John says the reason why is in verse 18, he continues and he says, because fear has to do with punishment. Because fear is a characteristic emotion of expecting punishment. That's what fear is. And this word for punishment that John uses in 1 John, it's only found one other time in the New Testament, and it's in red in your Bible because it's the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, verse verse 46. It's Jesus in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus uses this word punishment pertaining to the day of judgment, specifically the punishment of the unrighteous on this day of judgment. 
that condemnation will happen for evil and for the ungodly and all of the things that have destroyed God's world, that there will be an act of judgment when God acts justly against evil. This is the punishment that John is talking about. It's punishment on the day of judgment. But John says, the love of God frees you from this fear because we are not meant to fear. We're not meant to fear. See, if the origin of love is in God, where is the origin of fear? God created the world, Genesis 1 and 2, things are good. We come to Genesis 3 and sin enters the world. Adam and Eve rebel against God, what he's declared good for humanity and all of creation. And then God comes looking for them and says, Adam, where are you? And Adam says in verse 10 of chapter 3, God, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. So I hid the fear that John is talking about. This is not fight or flight, something creational that God has put us for our survival and warning. He's not talking about fight or flight. He's talking about being afraid. And being afraid, this type of fear is traced all the way back to the fall when sin entered the world. This is the origin of fear. We are not meant to be afraid. And as an old pastor, John knows this very well. He's pastored people. He's walked with people. He's seen a bunch of hard things. And now as an elderly man writing this, John knows that because of sin in the world, fear is real for people. And he knows that the fear of death is ingrained in the human psyche. And so John is addressing this fear in order to comfort the church to comfort God's people. What he wants the church to know is this. Church, if you only regard God as the judge, it produces fear in your heart because you know you've messed up, you know you sin, and you expect punishment from the judge. But knowing and encountering the love of God in Christ swallows up fear because you know him not just as judge, but you know him as your good shepherd. You know him as your redeemer, as your rescuer, as your healer, as your friend, as Emmanuel, the God who is with you. When you encounter the love of God, it frees you from fear. But some of you might be sitting here and you're like, well, I thought I read Proverbs and it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How do you make sense of that? Like we're not supposed to fear, but then in God's word, it says that you should fear God. What's important to understand the difference between healthy fear and unhealthy fear. Proverbs is talking about healthy fear. John is talking about unhealthy fear. Proverbs, the fear of the Lord, all that means is reverence and awe for the all-powerful, majestic God that is way bigger than we are. And it's a healthy fear of reverence for God. But reverence is very different than being afraid that God is going to punish you. And John says, you don't need to fear God if you know Jesus. There is no fear of God if you know Jesus. Church, you are in Christ. You don't need to fear God. Which is why John says, perfect love. 
casts out fear in verse 18. When John says perfect love, he is talking about Jesus. Perfect love is embodied in Jesus because the divine act of love on the cross is complete and John knows it because he stood there and saw it and he knows that the cross and the work of the cross is complete. Jesus has paid for your sin. He's atoned for your sin. So you no longer need to be afraid. You don't have to fear. Jesus took fear and he threw it out. He has thrown out the fear of punishment for the people of God, which is why the apostle Paul, when he writes Romans chapter eight, he says this in verse 15, he says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Church, it is impossible to be punished when you are a forgiven child of God. You don't need to be afraid of the one who loves you, who pursues you, and who forgives you. But when you fear, you begin to suffer punishment already because we weren't meant to fear. And maybe today people are less afraid of punishment, but people are still very afraid today. And there are two of the biggest fears that every person in life has. And study after study after study reveals that these are the two of the biggest fears that every person has, rejection and death. And these things grip so many of us. The fear of rejection, the whole inception and existence of peer pressure is tied to the fear of rejection. And when people have given into peer pressure because they don't want to be rejected, it has led to some of the most painful, damaging, and destructive decisions in people's lives. For the girl who's pressured into sex by her boyfriend, the guy whose friends all start using substances and so he jumps in and now he becomes addicted. The things that you will say and do in order to fit in just because you don't want to be rejected. But it's not just the peer pressure and poor decisions, it's isolation. That when you have a fear of rejection, you will, instead of putting yourself out there, you will close yourself off and further isolate. Fear of death. The fear of death leads to self-preservation. And we all saw this when COVID first broke out and we thought it was the day of judgment that John's talking about here. All of us were freaked out. Everybody was afraid to die. Everybody went into self-preservation mode, which is why there were basements and bedrooms stocked full of stuff for the next 10 years and nobody could buy toilet paper or paper towels in the store. When you operate out of fear, it paralyzes you. And maybe for you, it's not the fear of rejection or death. But where in your life are you operating out of fear? Where in your life are you operating out of fear? Or 
Where in your life are you trying to hide from God and hide from other people just like Adam and Eve? Because church, what John wants you to know is that Jesus has freed you from fear. You are no longer a slave to it. His love triumphs over fear because he has dealt with it on the cross. See, while the world is afraid of rejection, you are freed from the fear of rejection because of the cross of Christ. It means that you are fully accepted and fully loved by God because of Jesus. You are loved by him and you have the approval of the Father. You will never be rejected. You'll never be abandoned. You'll never be cast aside by him. If the God who created the universe and who created you accepts you, then you don't need to fear the rejection of others. And while the world is afraid of death, you are freed from the fear of death because the cross of Christ means that your death is not the end for you. It is just a doorway into life. Jesus defeated death and death means that resurrection is coming. But it's not just rejection and death. John says, the church, you are freed from the fear of punishment because the love of God has been lavished on you in Jesus. He paid the penalty for your sin so you could be free. You are no longer a slave to fear. And that means you don't need to try to hide from God. It means you don't need to tiptoe around him because he knows all the things you've done and he has dealt with every one of them from the darkest sin to your deepest regret. You can rest in the love of God because your assurance doesn't depend on your accomplishments, but on the accomplished work of Jesus. You have been forgiven, released, and freed, not just from sin, but also from fear. For John, the trauma of the cross frees you from the trauma of fear. Church, this is how you are actually able to love because you have been loved and you have been freed by the one who defines love. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word and thank you that you are the very definition of love and you have demonstrated and shown your love for us Lord, you've lavished your love upon us. Lord, and your love is unconditional. And Lord, we are so grateful that we don't have to meet a bunch of conditions to earn your love or keep your love. But Lord, you have gone to the cross and demonstrated it at the cost of everything so that we could be united with you. And so Jesus, we thank you for your love. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be speaking and stirring people in their, in their lives right now. Lord, that you'd bring conviction for ways that we haven't loved like you. Lord, for ways that we've misunderstood the definition of love. Lord, would you challenge us and confront us? Jesus, would you draw people near, Lord, that need comfort this morning, that they would experience your comfort? Lord, would you draw people near who need to repent, Jesus, that they could experience your grace and your kindness towards them? Lord, that we as your church would be able to love because we have received your love. And Lord, you have freed us, not just from our sin, but Lord, you've freed us from living and operating out of fear that we are fully known and fully loved by you. 
which is the deep longing of every one of us. And so Jesus, I pray right now that your spirit would move and work in our midst. Amen. Now we respond to the good news of Jesus that we just heard. And we do this by coming to the communion table. That it's through these elements that represent the very love of God for us. That it is the bread that represents Christ's body that was freely given for us. And the wine or the juice represents Christ's blood that was shed for us. And this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, this meal is for you. And if you by your own words are here and you'd say that you're not a Christian, we are really glad you're here. And we would love for you, our hope and prayer is that you would encounter the love of God here today. And so if you have questions or you want prayer, come and talk to any of us. We'll be on the, on the sides of the stage afterwards. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you if you have questions about Jesus. And if you need prayer, come and receive prayer. For this time, we'll take communion.